0: Hello and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting-edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout-out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. Before I introduce today's guest, a quick announcement. One of the interesting things to come out of producing these episodes so far is that every single guest uses Twitter to keep up with the latest machine learning research and to follow the most important people in the field. And while I am generally hesitant to use any sort of social media, when a bunch of smart people I'll tell you to do the exact same thing, you should probably do it. So I'm going to follow my own advice on this one. And I have started a Twitter account. So you can follow me at Charlie U, you spelled the normal way, Charlie U A I. And I'll be posting highlights from the podcast. So I record the video of both me and my guest, as well as posting things that I have learned on the job and things that I have learned from doing these interviews. So again, that is Charlie U.A.I. I hope to see you there. My guest today is a machine learning engineer at Viaduct AI. She's a graduate student at Stanford in computer science, as well as done multiple internships, including Facebook and Google Brain. She writes some truly excellent articles about machine learning on her personal blog, which I'm very excited to dig into today. Please welcome Shreya Shankar. Shreya, welcome to Machine Learning Engineered.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. And the question that I always kick these off with is, how were you first exposed to computer science and why did you decide to pursue it?
1: I think the story is a little bit long or convoluted maybe for me. I took my first programming class in 10th grade, I think. And it was me and maybe eight other kids. And it was called Programming Honors, but it was basically AP Computer Science A. And I kind of liked it. It wasn't super special. I honestly thought it was like a free 100 or easy grade because we didn't really do much. But I didn't think too much about programming, I think, after that. For many reasons, one, I just didn't know what I could do with Java programming, especially just like a basic concept of for loops or while loops. And then the other thing was I, I was the only girl in the class. I didn't have any friends in the class, so it didn't make any sense to me to continue, I don't know, developing my interest in a field if I didn't have any friends in it. But I I liked math, I liked STEM, and when I got to Stanford, I took an intro econ class and an intro computer science class. I took the computer science class because everybody in my dorm was taking it, and I'm the kind of person who can't be left out of situations. So I took it. The econ class was taught super poorly, egregiously poorly, and the computer science class was taught super well. The lecturer... Her name is Cynthia Lee. She's such a rock star. She got me super hooked on the subject. I went to all of her office hours. And by the end of that quarter, I decided, hey, like my CS class is the only class that I actually enjoy going to lecture for. So why don't I just take another CS class? And so I did. I kept going. I majored in or declared my major in computer science by the end of freshman year.
0: Yeah, the part you say about how AP Computer Science doesn't do a good job about connecting what you're learning there into how you can actually use it. I remember having the exact same feeling where, okay, yeah, I can kind of write a loop and I know what it prints out, but I want to make things online and stuff like that. So how do I do that?
1: Totally. (laughs) And it's so disconnected, right? You're like working in your IDE or Eclipse, or I think what Jcreator was what I was working with. And I just could not translate like a for loop in a class in my IDE to, like, any technology that I used ever, so, um, yeah.
0: And then at Stanford, it seems now that both Stanford and Berkeley, all the campuses, all the CS students, they're all AI, 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 but you chose a slightly different path in your undergrad. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, so I, I didn't know... For me, computer science felt so niche whenever I first started that I could not imagine that there were subfields in computer science that people could specialize in. So I, I first decided maybe I should do AI because that's the class that 800 other kids are in and everybody's talking about. And I took an AI class. I took a deep learning class and it was cool and I was excited about it. And then I tried to do a research project in deep learning because that's what everyone else does. And... It, And I think a lot of undergrads go through this, but at some point they realize, what am I doing? Is this what I want to do? I don't know what I want to do for the rest of my life. I tried an internship, but I didn't fall in love with it immediately. So what do I do? Big crisis. And I I did a pretty formative internship at Google Brain my junior year or beginning of my junior year during the year. And I got to work on machine learning security research. And being at Brain around all these super, super smart people made me realize wow, so many people are working on AI. So many people have staked their career and their life on AI research and just how impactful it's going to be to society. That I want to be a part of this, but I also want to build a skill set for myself that makes me valuable. And if I just take a bunch of AI classes like the other hundreds of students, in my cohort at Stanford, I'm not going to be any different. And I think talking to my advisor at Brain and other people, I decided maybe I should try to develop a skill set people don't have and that seems to be systems. Nobody likes programming in a language other than Python in ML research. And yeah, I kind of just went down that rabbit hole. I I found that I was not very good at math at Stanford and I loved the feeling of systems being more like I don't know something that I could pick up and even if I spent so many hours on it I would be able to figure it out at the end whereas some fields of math just felt like I would never be able to get there yeah
0: well to start off with the there were really 800 people taking a deep learning course at Stanford
1: I think Andrew Ng's machine learning course has 900 people the deep learning wow. course that I took was a few hundred people, but the Andrew Ng's machine learning course is super popular. The one on Coursera, essentially. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. That was actually, that was how I first started on machine learning, <laughs> on Coursera with Andrew Ng's, uh MATLAB <laughs> course, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And then to dig into the that systems part a bit, that's definitely, for sure, a good way to differentiate yourself. I remember my freshman year, I had uh, our data structures and algorithms courses—they were in C, just C, plain C—and I remember hating my life and not a ama- mat canting because I had done like Java Python before that. And man, this stuff was actually really hard compared to what I had done before. But that didn't—that didn't scare you. That was something you really wanted
1: to dig into. I think systems is somewhat of a different mindset because a lot of the work that goes into systems is planning, whereas like it's less experimentation cycles. Whereas in a lot of ML projects or even like data science projects or Python scripts, it's a lot of let me quickly try to get something up, an experiment up, learn from it and iterate on it, because I'm gonna have thousands of iterations of experiments. Whereas systems is like when you're trying to build a scheduler scheduler for an operating system, for example, is like sit down, really think about what are the abstractions? Think about all the possible race conditions you could have. What are the data structures you're going to build for this? How are they going to interact with each other? Yeah. And I kind of liked that like free form creativity, putting a lot of effort into one thing, seeing what happened, and then realizing I pigeonholed myself, and then having to start all over again. I think, yeah, they're very different philosophies to programming. Mm-hmm.
0: And then looking... Obviously, it sounds like you enjoyed the work itself very much, but looking back at it now from a career perspective, do you find that that was a useful thing to do, that it was good for your career?
1: I don't know about good for my career because I feel so early in my career, but I think it was incredibly useful because I have the confidence now to learn new technologies and debug large, I don't know, systems because I took these systems courses in undergrad. Like, I remember operating systems being so hard to debug. Same with compilers. Just having a good understanding of how databases works, like, stuff like that helped me. I kind of, <laughs> it sounds cliche, but it'd be fearless, I think, in debugging right now. Like, when I started my job, I had to figure out, okay, what is Docker and what is Kubernetes and what is Spark and, like, why do people use Spark in industry How do you kind of build frameworks on top of Spark that also mesh with the data science workflow so that way people can collaborate regardless of whether they're engineers or data scientists? Um, Like all of these things, I think having a systems background really kind of helps me pick up these new concepts. Hmm,
0: Interesting. And you mentioned that, yeah, you had uh, in your process of choosing this that you consulted with, the people that you were working with at Google Brain at the time during your internship after junior year. And to, was that the time when you helped on the paper for adversarial examples and, and that experiment?
1: Yes, definitely. So that was, yeah, the beginning of my junior year, I was working on that experiment working on that paper. And I'd taken, I think, two or three systems classes before then, but nothing enough to declare a track in systems at Stanford. I think you have to take five or six classes in the concentration. So, I immediately after that, I took operating systems and then I took security and then kind of just went that route.
0: Mhm. Yeah, and the to dig into more of the of the Google Brain internship and the work that you did. That's a very interesting paper in that it's probably the only machine learning paper I've read where that went through the IRB and actually had human subjects. What was that like?
1: I was less involved, I think, in the human subject. My co-author Gamal was definitely spearheading that I was more involved in like creating the adversarial like, examples to fool an ensemble of computer vision models and then trying to, I don't know, add layers to the models or to the computer vision models to kind of mimic that of what the retina does. Like whenever you look at something, you you focus on like the center of what you're looking at and the peripherals are a little bit blurry. So whenever you use gradient-based techniques to create adversarial examples, you want to hone in on these kinds of things that humans do in their own perception to try to create examples to specifically fool them. So I, I kind of like put together the ML pipeline to generate those adversarial examples. And I thought that was super fascinating for me because I didn't know what an adversarial example was before going into that. And then suddenly I had trained like six I don't know. At the time, right, it was all TensorFlow one 1.0, point GPUs, you got it you use like a P one hundred for two weeks to train your ResNet one hundred, like that that was the state of the art. Yeah. <laughs> so it was it was crazy, but I learned a lot for sure.
0: Yeah. It it just strikes me as such a interesting result in that I never would have expected it. Where first can you talk about to our listeners who haven't read the paper what the results were and then if they were surprising to you as well
1: yeah so before we ran that experiment we noticed a phenomenon of adversarial examples for computer vision models which is essentially you take a computer vision model will take in some image and then output like what label it thinks the image is so for example an image of a dog and it'll assign it a label of a dog turns out that you can if you have access to the model parameters you can kind of use some gradient based techniques To create small perturbations to that input image, such that the new image with the perturbation applied doesn't look any different from the original image, but the computer vision model is totally fooled into thinking it's something else, like a cat or like a koala or panda bear or something. And we were just curious does this exist for humans too, right? And there's literature in optical illusions or like, the blue and the black dress versus the white and the gold dress that's circulated the internet a few years ago. These kinds of things do exist, but can you generate them in a principled manner in the same way that you can for machine learning models was our, what was our question that we wanted to answer. And for me, at the beginning of the experiment, I was like, well, duh, it's a no-brainer. Of course you can trick humans. That's what social media does. And it was so funny because my co-authors, I thought this was like a super moonshot project. <laughs> um, they were like, yeah, maybe it'll just never work, but it could be cool if it worked. But I think as, as someone who had the pers- had no perspective on machine learning, just, yeah, I, I kind of went into it. Of course it's going to work. Like, we're going to make it work. And yeah, we, we did find that in the time-limited setting. So if I flash an image to you, that, for example, if the image is of a dog, but I flash it to you, you might think it's a cat. But if you look at it for several seconds, then you'll realize it's a dog, or even just one second, you'll realize it's a dog. And that was kind of fascinating to me because the implications of that are big, right? Like you scroll through your news feed or just the products that you interact with and you spend like less than half a second on. If that makes an impression in your brain, that's not true. What might that be? I don't know. Scary.
0: Yeah, and the thought of well, the thought of adversarial examples when they were first brought up was concerning enough, I would say. But the fact that you can also do this and target well, there's a level below that of you can actually target a non-specific model where they're generally you can fool uh, a certain class. But then to go even a step further and say you can also fool humans with essentially the same thing—that's, uh, yeah, like you said, it's not it doesn't seem great.
1: Yeah, it's definitely scary.
0: Mm-hmm. And we're, of course now we're seeing all the—I don't know if you've seen the documentary on uh, Netflix about <laughs> Facebook, the social media one, the
1: social dilemma. I did see; I saw it twice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so all those uh, kind of things are starting to come into the limelight. So research like that is definitely starting to play a role definitely and after you did this internship was it pretty shortly after that that you were deciding between doing a phd or going to into industry
1: yes i think it was like less than a year after that i think my internship at google brain made me realize i really like research i love where ai is going and i want to be a part of the rocket ship and i like bought into all of it I think I'm still kind of bought into it now, but I, I was very bought into it then. And I, yeah, senior year, I think I I really did want to get a PhD at the time, but that did not happen.
0: <laughs> Can you talk about making that decision? Because I really liked your article on this, and it seems like it really resonated with a lot of people, especially since you approached it from like a, a retrospective kind of way, where you had... What you were thinking at the time, and then now your commentary just a few months ago on what uh, on what that was
1: like. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you can check out that article I guess online. But at the time, I think I was writing my statement of purpose, and I I knew I wanted to work on robustness and just in general of machine learning models. Whether that includes adversarial examples, it includes like fairness, quote unquote bias, whatever that means. How do you kind of make sure that models are deployed safely? in a trustworthy way in a real-time setting. But it just felt silly to me at the time to kind of like write the application. And I didn't even know how they were used in the real world. Um, like, of course I can read articles about examples of how these models are used, but, but I wanted to like kind of sit there and like, know what it was like to build these systems. And I didn't know if I could spend six years doing research in this area without ever knowing. And I, I'm glad that I had the conversations I had at that time with my advisor and whatnot because I learned that it's much easier to make the to feel confident about making the transition from industry to PhD rather than make it's it's very hard to feel confident about making the transition from dropping out of a PhD to industry.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that's a great point. And of course, now you're working at, at Viaduct AI. You chose to go into industry. So at, at a very broad level, there's a stat that you had in your article that 87% of these machine learning projects, everyone learns how to model in their, in their undergrad deep learning course, machine learning Coursera. And now we're seeing, of course, GPT-3. It's like a super, super sick model. And but where are all the great products? So at a high level. What is stopping machine learning from going into production at so many different companies?
1: I think there's a lot of small parts of that question that I've kind of been learning over the past year, ranging from just the infrastructure needed to kind of serve these models in a reliable fashion. Because like whenever you do research or you're in a research setting, right, you have your fixed traded test set and you build the model once. when you're out in the world you want your inference to train ratio to be very high like for every time you train the model you want to be able to serve it i don't know have it run inference as much as possible and we don't quite understand we don't have the like dynamics for that yet especially in these production systems um so that's one part of it and then the other end of the spectrum i think is how do you productize machine learning so how do you have the mindset that machine learning is a tool, but package that into something that non-technical or non-machine learning people can understand and use to get some sort of business value in applications they have. So take my company, for example, we build machine learning pipelines for car companies, vehicle companies. And a lot of the challenge is in defining a product that the car companies can understand Because there's no like right or wrong machine learning model, right? There's always a trade-off between precision and recall. And there's always a varying level of F1 that you could have, depending on how you train your model. And how do you kind of communicate these results and have the client be able to choose that and know exactly what that translates to in ROI? I think those are definitely hard problems that I think are necessary to
0: solve. Yeah, yeah, and then especially that last part about communication with non-technical people. We as as technical people, we often take for granted just how when you start talking even just about accuracy metrics and confidence intervals, not everyone has been trained in in that in those statistics and they might like you said, they don't know how, what that actually means in terms of business growth. Are there some are there like communication techniques that you've learned or that you're that you've seen to get better at this?
1: Yeah, I, it's definitely something I'm trying to learn for sure. I, I've kind of compiled a list of like, things not to do in my head. Like one of the mistakes that I've made is assume that it, it sounds silly when I say it out loud, but I think a lot of people make this mistake too. It's a lot of people, myself included. Assume that the hardest machine learning problem to solve is the one that delivers the most value. When, who said that's true, right? You want to solve the machine learning problem that like saves the most money or delivers the most business value, and maybe that's something as simple as just building a product that like maximizes recall. Who knows, right? You, you don't know the cost of your false. Po- you need to assess the cost of your false positives and your false negatives in order to figure this out. But yeah, I think just trying to figure out put yourself in the customer's shoes figure out what is it that they care about what is the hardest thing for them from a non machine learning perspective because machine learning is just a tool right like maybe some like decision stump is the way to get there in fact a lot of the times i've found that a decision stump is literally all they're lacking before they can serve whatever predictions they want to serve but to get to that requires like a shift away from like solving the hardest machine learning problems and just solving the ones that are immediately bringing value.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting point and it kind of ties into how the incentives in research are a lot different from those in industry because obviously in research if you're looking for a paper to put out, it's okay, what are the hardest problems? Let's just do that. <laughs> Instead of how could how could my research be useful? Like oh, that's not really going to get citations, eh, I'm not going to do it. But then like you say in industry it's like a customer could not care less about how it's done in fact it's probably better for them if yeah if if it's done in a simpler way because they can actually understand it
1: totally it has been a hard learning experience for me like watching ml models go down the drain for example or i'm like oh my god i like just just trained the -the state-of-the-art machine learning model and all of this data and now we're never going to use it but yeah yeah i've learned my my colleagues and
0: i we call that the research graveyard (laughs) <laughs> because we're we all so attached to our models that we have to give them a little bit... Uh, when they're not put into production, we give them a little ceremony. and <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maybe we have to take that. Maybe we have to do that.
0: <laughs> is there... Uh, I guess to go on a quick tangent, is there a favorite model of yours that you thought was just so elegant that you thought was going to be really great and then it just didn't <laughs> oh.
1: I don't know in what setting. I think... By hook or by crook, you can find some setting to make a model work in, or you can find some model to work in some setting. Like (laughs) that, I I feel like that can always happen. But yeah, I think one recent story of something that I did was I, I attempted to train a transformer with some modifications on a bunch of time series data, sensor data, actually. And I think it's different from a lot of the existing literature that benefits a lot from Transformers because it's less, or like the existing literature is more in NLP or maybe in like an image domain, but you have kind of like a finite vocabulary maybe, or your sequence lengths aren't like infinite, or you're not like dealing with literal time series sensor values. So there's a lot of difference. I didn't know if it would work or not. And I went through all of the engineering effort to kind of make that happen from like the Spark side to the TensorFlow, the TF records to the TensorFlow side to the serving side and everything. And it didn't work as well as I wanted it to. But I think for me, I'm the kind of person that's, oh, if it didn't work, like that's not a waste because I'll find a way to make it work for something else or something that I learned in the process, like for example, I went through super rigorous data cleaning to make this data ready to be used in the deep learning setting. And that is definitely like, super impactful, because I can make like dumb features from just that clean data and put that in decision tree. Maybe it does better, but at least the work didn't go to waste. And the other thing that's, yeah, maybe I can use these transformer embeddings as intermediate features to another tree or something. I, I, I'm sure something will come out of it. It So, I'm not too terribly disappointed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a great point that everything can actually be probably used somewhere down the line. Yeah. And then the I can I can just hear in my head some of my some researchers I know that would be listening to what you just said. They say like data cleaning, feature engineering, we're doing deep learning here. You don't need any of that stuff. <laughs> So is there, what have you learned in regards to what has to be done with with the data in order to make something work in production?
1: I find this hilarious because deep learning only works in a sandbox when you have perfect data and there isn't that much class imbalance or the classes are balanced. And when you kind of like the high level stats of your data coming in and you featurized it properly or represented the data properly, all of these things need to be like perfect in order for deep learning to work, it's magic. And it's quite fascinating to me that people kind of diss the whole feature engineering data cleaning thing because, of course, you don't believe that. You don't see that because you're working with net every day or you're working with the core a question-answer set every day or, like, whatever NLB corpus you're using. But, yeah, <laughs> it's definitely dirty work that needs to be done.
0: Yeah, for sure. Is there something that, or is there, like, a, some resource that you could point to in terms of if someone wanted to really learn more about this is the first thing you do in data cleaning, like these are the considerations, this is what you want at the end output.
1: Oh man, I don't know. I feel like everything I've learned from that is on the job or from like senior data scientists at my company.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's actually mm. why I wanted to ask the question because it is such like knowledge that most people just end up <laughs> having to learn through experience and their models not working. So I don't know if there's some sort of resource to make that easier.
1: Yeah, maybe. I've been compiling a list of, at this point, like I'm starting on my 10th iteration or so of like how to build a machine learning model in production. And I like now have this little checklist of what I need to do step by step to make sure I get some little working prototype out there. But I, I would, yeah, maybe I'll go searching for a book or something. Maybe I'll write <laughs> this as an article, who knows? <laughs> <laughs>
0: So would you mind sharing actually what is on that checklist? Because I think that would uh, be very interesting to hear about.
1: Yeah, okay. I got to go find it. But at a high level, it's broken into one, define the data pipelines, make sure they're reliable if you're ingesting them regularly, you're make sure that you're tracking like how they change over time. Two is define the labels. Three is to find the evaluation metric you're going for, whether that's like precision or recall, precision at some sort of recall, recall at some, I don't know, come up with whatever you want, make sure you know exactly what that translates to. Then four is serious data cleaning. And that can kind of be informed by like the stats that you track on your data pipelines. So for example, if you know how your data is changing over time as you regularly adjust, or you also know what are the mins and maxes, what the percentiles are. Most real-world data is not normally distributed, so to me, it doesn't make sense to do an easy score-based cleaning. Do some sort of outlier, like IQR-based cleaning. So, for example, like I'll throw out like anything that's three, but more than three IQRs above the median. For example, it's more robust, I guess. And when I say throw out, I'll replace it with null. I think a lot of it is like diving into the data and the cleaning stage and like figuring out, okay, does it make sense? What do you do when you find an outlier? Because an outlier is different in different contexts. Do you make it null? Do you clamp it or clip it or whatever the terminology is? Is an outlier an erroneous sensor reading? Because if so, maybe you should make it null. But is it just a super, super abnormally high reading? Because if so, then you should probably clamp it. So I think all of this is kind of developing intuition for what your data is, cleaning it in that way, knowing that you'll have to go through multiple iterations, tracking how those outliers change over time. And then, yeah, I think Andrew Ng has a good talk that he recently did about this in terms of the modeling side. But for me, like, I will start with a stupid decision tree, like depth two or three, feed in a little handful of features, see what happens, fix the model. And kind of change the subsampling ratio and whatnot just to get a sense for. A lot of this is just again developing intuition for like what my data is, what my class imbalance is like. Does subsampling help or not? Oversampling, undersampling, all of those stuff. Usually, I'll fix the model, do all the iteration on the data side, anyways. Know like what features to add incrementally. I feel like I can go on and on about this. So <laughs> tell me when to stop.
0: So, uh, uh, yeah, I guess to. So, what <laughs> is step five on that on that list then?
1: Yeah, step five. For me, like having a principled way of adding new features, I think is important. Like you can come up with thousands and thousands of features if you're going to do hand feature engineering, but how do you know what delivers value and what doesn't? And so maybe that's something like write your pipelines to generate a bunch of features and then kind of run some like statistical tests, for example. Like the I can never pronounce it, right? Kol- Kolmogorov-Smirnov test, KS test, or a Mann-Whitney test, or, or Jensen-Shannon divergence, or something right, to determine whether the distribution of the feature in the like positive class is different from the distribution of the feature in the negative class. So if there's a big divergence, then maybe this feature at a first order or at a high level is actually indicative of um, some sort of failure or some sort of prediction task that you're interested in. Well of course these are just statistical tests right so if the p value is really tiny well if you have just a really huge sample size right the p value will inevitably tiny will inevitably be tiny so you can't just like treat this as ground truth right so maybe just like, run these tests to get a high level sense of what features alone are discriminative between your positive and negative class. And then you can use that maybe ranking as like an order of what you add features to your tree in order to tease out the interactions between features. Yeah, a lot of this is just, it's iteration on that. But for me, I think the biggest thing is hold your model constant and do most of your iteration on the feature side and make sure that you have an evaluation setup that you don't change. So yeah, evaluate on the same test set no matter what or evaluate on the same series of test sets. I think it's more robust to have a series of test sets because that's more indicative, I guess, of what you would be doing in the live setting.
0: Yeah. And when you're going through this process of not just, not just uh, of looking at the features themselves, but also the previous step of data cleaning, how are you, how are you documenting all, all of this and how are you so that, because reproducibility, obviously you've talked about this and, this is something I experience every single day. How do you make sure that you can do it again?
1: I think it's really hard. And I think maybe this is controversial, but it's the responsibility of the people building the systems to ensure that whatever nonsense data scientists do can be replicated, right? So maybe that means when we build a system, anytime somebody runs an experiment, on, I don't know, whatever, like, flow or Airflow or whatever DAG scheduler they decide to use to run their experiments, like, they get the hash of the Git repo and all the metrics are logged to the same place or something. Like, something that just allows you to have that, like, a snapshot of what the data that was being used, the code that was being run, and the metrics that were generated at that time. I think that's the first step to, like, if you could have that all in one place, then you should be able to use that same data and that same code (laughs) to get those (laughs) same metrics otherwise there's some other problem going on Um, yeah
0: yeah all the tools for this are so new and it's such a such a hard problem because you have to really there's so many different steps they're all connected together so everything just has to be like perfect to be able to do that
1: yeah totally it's so hard right and a lot of these like experiment like the DAG schedulers and whatnot like for example Airflow is absolutely atrocious for ML experiments like it's very good for any recurring pipelines or scheduled pipelines in which like every week I need to ingest data and then now I can easily use the UI to like backfill any previous bad runs or something but when you're running an ML experiment you don't run it with the intention of running it a billion times like you run it once and if it broke then you run it again but usually you'll learn from that and then make a different experiment so what ends up happening is if you like create a different dag for each ml experiment you just have this cluttered ui of all of these like one-off ad hoc dags that you ran for every experiment like how many experiments do you run in a week like tens hundreds like it gets it gets too big too fast right
0: yeah I, i just remember how my an organization that that I was interning at before they learned this the very hard way in that the my intern project actually was hey okay this guy just quit we don't know why his model works (laughs) your job is to reproduce it (laughs) he had he had no documentation like he, he all he all he had handed off was uh like a paper and he the only note that he had on the paper was this loss function didn't work. I talked to the author at a conference, but he didn't say what the solution was.
1: That's so funny. (laughs) Oh man, yeah, I could rant for hours about how half the ML paper, ML research papers I've tried to replicate, I've never been able to replicate.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then for yeah, this initial step, I'm always curious about. In terms, because everyone has like very different workflows what would be the ideal tool for you? Like from the moment that you, someone says, okay, we have this data set, it's in like Spark or whatever. And then what would the ideal tool look like in terms of tracking and versioning and stuff like that?
1: Oh my God, I don't know. If I knew this, I would build it, And man. Like, <laughs> I, I think there's a lot of like small things. Like I would love for all of my tooling to be in one ecosystem just as a small baseline requirement. Like right now I feel like I just run through hoops trying to go from Spark to Python to like TensorFlow to like back to Python, back to Spark. It's just, can we do everything in one place? Like starting from there, then I think it'll be much more easy to come yeah. up with a workflow.
0: Mm-hmm. And of course the end to end, pipeline or all the end to end systems. Like uh TFX now was just released and then I think yeah there's like SageMaker and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But you're just so locked in once you're in there and there's those that all have their own problems as well. So yeah, it's uh it's an interesting yeah. time to be in the space just to be seeing all the different possibilities.
1: Totally. And I feel like I'm the worst customer ever because I want all the flexibility but I want everything streamlined. So I would never use SageMaker. Because i all like feel like I'm guardrailed. but anything that gives me a lot of flexibility, I feel like is not streamlined, so yeah, where's that trade off? I don't know mm-hmm.
0: so then I used to to go back to the to the checklist. What is at step six?
1: Oh, I have no e where i where I leave off, So like adding features and uh, principal yeah, manner. Features. Seeing results. I think, okay, after that, it becomes very, and there's no like steps, I think, there, because that's the back and forth, I think, with the other stakeholders to figure out like what is viable, right? It's, I think it's on the ML practitioner to come up with a setup that they believe is representative of the real world setting. But once they've come up with that and they've fixed all of the like hoses into the machine learning model, then it's just iteration on like the data or whatever going in to make sure that the metric is something that the other stakeholders understand and they're happy with. And you figured out how you can be confident that you can replicate that metric in like a real world setting. So maybe that's like your holdout evaluation sets have high performance or like whatever you come up with. I think that's good science. Um, and then after that, I think is the, the game of the production, the serving, all of that kind of stuff. For me, I think it's like understanding the latency requirements. So one is understanding the inference cycles of what the customer expects. So do they expect, like, when they ping for new predictions, that the predictions are literally representative of that moment in time? Or would they be happy with just if I just generated the predictions overnight, for example, and then store them in a Postgres table and I just serve the Postgres table are they okay with five hours stale predictions, right? So like understanding both like how frequently you need to run inference to make them happy and what that latency is that they expect. Because you can decouple them if you like, if you want, right? You don't have to run inference every time they ping the API. Yeah, so like figuring that up, designing your pipeline around that, then inevitably I think. And I'm in the cycle, I think, now with other stakeholders at my company, which is I serve predictions, but they're not what's expected. So coming up with debugging processes, I think, to go back in that cycle of, okay, I think it was something that's ish- a problem with like machine learning, engineering, or debugging is that you can't file a ticket that this is a bug and then go isolate that bug in the system and then patch it. Because it's like something went wrong and the, the tree never lies. Like You went to that... N- leaf and you output that prediction and you say it's wrong well like that means the split is what do i change right all of this is very hand wavy yeah, yeah and some I, customers just
0: won't understand that they'll say <laughs> you'll give them a machine learning solution and then inevitably they'll come back a week later and say yeah it's pretty good but here's <laughs> one specific case that it doesn't work on can you fix it
1: Yeah, it's fascinating to me. That's something I realized. I think a lot of non-machine learning people have this mental map of a machine learning model in their head that's like a hash table or something where you, I don't know, you input an example and you look up the prediction for that. And there's just like a one-to-one mapping and that's it, oops. Um, Like a one-to-one mapping, that's it. And if there's a problem with one guy, you could just go and edit it, edit the entry in the table and then you're done. But like for all of us practitioners, what do we think of when we think of machine learning models? Like we think of a line or we think of a tree, or we think of like some face some space that's I don't know cluttered with data points, like we all have our own different mental maps, and it's hard to I think iterate on that yeah, it
0: goes back to that communication part of being able to something that I wouldn't say it frustrates me, but I continually have to explain it to, to non-technical people is that we can i don't know so let's just use image an exam as an example okay we can definitely within four months get to 95 percent accuracy on this and they say okay 95 percent actually is pretty good what about 99 what about 99.5 <laughs> three sigma you say yeah that might not be possible and it, like that just can't How do you solve that problem in terms of communicating how that works? Because I can never find something how to explain it correctly.
1: I think it's really hard. And it's also very uh, application specific. Like I think you're alluding to how do you come up with an oracle for real world data or real world machine learning problems? What does that even mean? What is a scenario or a setup in which you can cheat? Like in the time series context, maybe that I can look into the future on different data points or something like that. But like, how, how do you estimate like a upper bound of how well you can do, and communicate that? I think is also extremely difficult.
0: Yeah, and it just doesn't really work inside of the context of how a lot of product managers want it to work. Like you, you said earlier, the you can't really file a Jira ticket for a bug, but should your, but more broadly. Should all of your research projects be spikes? Like, how do you estimate (laughs) things within that?
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. My greatest fear is that somebody, someday, somebody will come out with a Jira specifically designed for, like, machine learning projects or machine learning tools. And I will be using Jira and GitHub Issues and Monday.com and this new tool and Google Docs and Slack. And, like, I don't know if I'll be able to do it. (laughs)
0: it it, that's funny it reminds me of i don't know if you ever look at xkcd but they had a there was one old one that i always get reminded of where it's like oh there's 13 competing standards for this one thing if only there was just one let's make that one there are now 14 standards (laughs) (laughs)
1: oh man yeah
0: and for the like how does I don't know if you're able to get into this but how does your team handle project management for for all this?
1: It's something we are actively trying to learn. Like we've switched our project management tools multiple times throughout the course of the past year. We literally started out in Google Sheets and like different other tools, I guess like how do you track and follow KRs? Like how do you I don't know who has solved this. Like how do you do project management for data science? 'Cause I think in software engineering, every task that you assign, there's clear acceptance criteria, if that makes sense for the task. Yeah. And like when it's done, it's done, you can kind of estimate that. But for machine learning, if you make a task like an experiment idea or like a hypothesis you're trying to prove or disprove, like what is the acceptance criteria? That you made the experiment and got result and got some result, because like sure, of course we can hit that acceptance criteria, but But the result of that is what determines the next step. So like how do you plan out a trajectory when there's so many different branches you could go down and you can't know until you like go down just one of them?
0: Yeah. Yeah, every so often I'll be really bored or something and start thinking about this problem and how you can design software for it. And there's so many like you can have I guess you can have estimates in terms of probability distributions or (laughs) and then you can have but then you also have to have conditional distributions on previous tasks and what's down the line. And then eventually I always end up thinking this would be so complicated that no PM would ever be able to understand what's <laughs> going on here.
1: One thing I have to give so much credit to PMs at my company is like their understanding of like machine learning metrics is awesome, I think. And it's been super helpful for collaboration. But I wonder yeah, what it's like at other important. companies. I don't think so. I don't think that's the case.
0: I think there's been a push recently of a lot of the bigger companies to have like a ML for everyone type of training. When people go to work inside the ML org, just so they can kind of understand the lingo, so they're not completely lost. So I think that's a, a pretty that's good, a good way to step. do it.
1: Yeah.
0: Maybe, I'm just thinking of this idea now, but because I've never heard of that in smaller companies. And they definitely have this need. Maybe you can make some sort of education <laughs> consulting company around this. But
1: <laughs> Oh, anyway. I'm positive somebody will come up with the Jira for ML projects. Like, 100% it's going to happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, you can have uh, the scrum master of ML. Of ML Jira. Oh, <laughs> so then let's try and shift back again to maybe step 7? 8? Oh, you yeah, were talking was- about uh, I yeah, was talking about, about serving,
1: like... yeah, in that cycle, and then usually it goes back to step one. Of either you need to redo the project problem entirely again, or you go to a different problem. I think, but definitely, like the end of that cycle is a lot more hand wavy and a lot of like domain expertise. I found, for working with the stakeholders.
0: Hmm. So to dig more a little bit more into serving and and deploying. How do you, are you thinking about monitoring your models and like the I.O. around it?
1: When you mean the, oh, the uh, I.O. for the model? For yeah, specifically yeah. for the model. That's funny. I've never heard of I.O. in the model context. Yeah, I think there's a lot of tooling I want to build around this, and I've started with some, but I would like to do more. But I think every stage of the pipeline needs its own monitoring when it comes to like your inference pipeline. So usually like you'll have a training pipeline, you'll have an inference pipeline. and At some point you'll take the model from your training pipeline, plop it in the inference pipeline, and then that'll keep going. So the inference pipeline, I think every single step needs to be monitored from like data ingestion to feature engineering, whatever's coming out of the outputs, to however the customer is using it. I think one thing that I've been thinking about and building some tools for is like, how do you monitor the distribution shift of your features and how do you monitor the distribution shift of your outputs and make sure they're progressing in fashion that you expect, if that makes sense. So maybe that is run a rolling window over your features or run a rolling window over your outputs. And for every like slice and for every window that you look at, slice it into compare your distribution in the first half of the window of distribution in the second half of your window and if they diverge then like something's going on you don't know i don't know what the hard and fast rule is for this but it's just been something that i've thinking, been thinking about and written a little bit of spark code to do for mm-hmm. myself yeah <laughs>
0: yeah it's super hard i don't think i don't know if anyone has a has like a this is how you do it kind of kind of solution for it especially when you get into the the part about when you're looking at distributions for specific features, because in a lot of ways, it goes back to the like the step five or six where you're talking about how you're looking at what the features that are really important are versus like how they're how they're balanced in terms of the class outputs. And then when you're monitoring it, you do you have that data available from how important each feature is? So for example, I can imagine a situation where you have two different features that are diverging but they're diverging in opposite directions and you don't really know how that affects the output i don't know if this is like way down the line kind of
1: stuff oh t- totally or, i think it's possible to know your future importance at the time of inference because a lot like xgboost and uh, any all of those uh, apis have their own future importance api and like it's a little bit hazy right like maybe in a random forest setting right like when we, think, when we think about what features are important, we look at the features and their values at the top of the tree or at the nodes closer to the root. And we believe those are the most important. Whereas the API might tell us otherwise because like, you could use the same feature in your leaf nodes as you do in the root. So they have their own algorithm that they use for determining feature importance and they'll assign each feature a score or something. So I think it's I think the question is complicated because you need to figure out exactly what it is that you do care about, and you're totally spot on. These models care about interactions between features, not just like how one feature itself varies over time. I don't know how to solve that problem for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, and to throw even more, I had an analogy in mind, but I totally lost it. But to add on to more to the problems instead of sol- instead of solutions. This is even monitoring's even harder in when your inputs are text or, or oh images. Gosh, yeah. Is there? Uh, I just don't know how that would even work. Like we've I've tried some things with dimensionality reduction, where you take, uh, yeah, where you're you're like pulling out different parts of the of the neural network and you're monitoring that.
1: Yeah.
0: But it's. It's not something that we've been able to use in production. I don't know if you've ever had some sort of solution for that.
1: I don't work with too much text data. I definitely don't work with any images to be able to have any, I feel like valid opinions on this topic, but I can't <laughs> okay, imagine. Fair. I feel like it'd be incredibly different, d- difficult, actually. Especially the larger your input vectors are, the more challenging it is to do at scale, just for like compute constraints.
0: Yeah, and there's this also connects back to one of the other papers that you've co-authored in in terms of bias in the different data sets, but monitoring bias or even
1: uh well
0: I guess you wouldn't. I guess you could monitor in production, but the bigger issue is that that validation before it goes into production. How do you think about
1: that? Yeah, I actually have been thinking about this a lot. I think there's a lot of chatter around like a i ethics or m l ethics and bias right now, which I'm super happy about, but one of the bigger problems we see right now, at least in the industry setting, is there's a lot of reactive suggestions which is like I found one data point that I don't like the output that was associated to it. I don't know what to do, whereas I don't know what it means to have a proactive framework for ensuring that there's no bias in like models or data or whatnot, right? Because the people who say that, oh, if you just have a perfectly balanced data set, then you won't have this problem. I don't know if that's true. I think models also have a role to play in learning because some learning things from some subpopulations might actually be more challenging than learning other subpopulations. So just having like, all balanced classes or something like that might not actually be um, perfect. And the other thing is, like, how do you even measure that, like, balanced data set, right? Just having an equal number of labels for every subpopulation doesn't ensure that for every subpopulation, you have sampled from the distribution randomly, if that makes sense. Like, you could have just only grabbed the tail of that distribution. Or you could have only grabbed the middle of that distribution, right, but you want to get across the entire spectrum
0: yeah, and plus there's the issue of you're just withholding even more data from the model, and that's at least in industry uh, I don't know if your company has a problem, probably a lot of people do, but it's yeah, the data is literally the oil of all of this if you <laughs> like the idea of throwing away data is just it just doesn't make sense in a lot of cases
1: actually, I feel very strongly about this. I also get this FOMO whenever I don't use all of the data in my machine learning model because like we were taught the opposite. We are taught like use all of the data you have and throw more data you get better results. Like why would you exclude data? But I do think there is a lot of merit to excluding data, especially when like you've never looked at the data before. You don't really know what's in it. You don't know what all the subpopulations are. Like Try to first learn a problem that you can actually wrap your head around, which is maybe there's only a few classes and that it's, it's pretty like well distributed, whatever. Have just a handful of features. because I feel like at the moment you train your first machine learning model and you cannot interpret that model, then like, how are you going to improve on it? if you don't know what the limitations are and you don't know what the strengths are if you don't know if you don't have a sense if i'm trying to predict which cars are going to have engine failure and i don't know what is the most important feature for this like what is it how am i going to improve on this model like i would imagine there are some i don't know cars that have driven more miles are more likely to have engine failure than cars that have never driven at all like having these like certain baseline like assumptions and being able to check that in the model I think is pretty important, and that's very really interesting. How does that play into
0: your modeling process in terms of how you're choosing what to start with is it Is it just what makes the most intuitive sense, or are you taking a more <laughs> it's not an unbiased approach, but you're you're like, okay, I really don't know. So let's just run it and see what the
1: interpretation is. Yeah. I think it goes back to one of the earlier steps I mentioned, which is like, start with a handful of features. And if you're lucky enough to work with domain experts, they can suggest features. Like if you're building climate models or something, like they'll know what is, yeah. I don't know, indicative of whatever process you're trying to predict. But another thing is like, I was telling you about the like the KS test or the the Jensen-Shannon divergence and like running those tests can allow you to like understand which features at the first order are actually discriminative and then maybe using them one at a time to feed into the model and then see how mm-hmm. your model changes.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's let's say that you do run that test and you do find what are you looking for in that result? And what do you? what is the next step after that? I guess yeah. that's kind of maybe too general of a question.
1: No, I can tell you or... what I did for my most recent problem. So it's like I had, I don't know, a thousand features generated from Spark or whatever. And I grouped them semantically of what I thought made sense. So for example, mm-hmm. I was like, "If let's just take the predict engine failure as a problem. It's not exactly what I was trying to do, but it'll True. work. And some of them are like car usage features. Some of them are external environment features. Some of them are diagnostic trouble code features. I don't know, like, just group them into groups that make sense, I guess, at a high level. Then I ran the stats test for each feature, computed, like, the statistic and the p-value. I care more about the statistic, right, because it's, like, when you have a very large sample size, the p-value can be small no matter what. And then kind of just, like, find, I don't know, for each group, like, the median or mean statistic value if it's really large then this could be like a set of discriminative features and then maybe you can add those features to the model first or train a model just with those features and see how it does and then add some more features that are maybe a little bit less discriminative i don't know like these stats tests are not like they're not ground truth right but they can maybe help they help me get a sense for what adds information to the model hmm so let's say that Actually let's let's zoom out for for a second. And you said that
0: you really or I guess this is more going to back one to back to one of your earlier points, which was that you really want to not think of it in terms think of all this stuff in terms of one-off experiment, but that you really do want to be able to to iterate on it easily. What are the things that you're doing? We already talked about versioning and hashing. What are some other things that are involved in terms of making that iteration easier and faster?
1: Yeah, I think it's important to note that, for me, there's two different processes I go through. One is the data science process. If I have a question and I run an experiment or I design and run an experiment to answer that question, and that question could be like, how does the oversampling or undersampling ratio affect performance? Or does that even affect performance? Like like certain like data science-y questions that I have that are like, I think one-off experiments are totally fine and probably necessary for And I noticed for myself, at least at some point, I I develop intuition about the beta and the model. And then I become like the engineer of like, all right, let's run a ton of experiments at scale. Let's um, try to run this for different periods of time, different rate, like, different random seeds different types of models let's just go at it i feel like that was those latter like the engineering mindset is really what needs to have that, like reproducibility i think and replicability and stuff that you're talking about yeah and i think in that it's just i think it's easier to do if you're one person and you're doing this in a principled approach and you're writing down all the variables you're changing and then you like create a different graph of tasks for each um variable you're changing or whatever i don't know how people do this in a collaborative setting it sounds extremely challenging <laughs> other than just like divide and conquer the experiments that's what my coworkers and i kind of do but having two people collaborate on the same exact run sounds like i, I have no idea
0: yeah google has their collab mm-hmm. platform although i have never heard of anyone actually collaborating with it. People just kind of use it as a hosted notebook.
1: <laughs> yeah, collabs, the other thing with colab is you can't schedule it. For example, if I want to run that collab notebook with 15 different values of a parameter, that's really hard to do, except for I could write a for loop in the notebook. But let's say I want to change like 12 parameters. Like at that point, I just want a dag of tasks to run and whatnot. Yeah, that's hard. The other thing that's hard with colab at least as- I don't know if you can see the other person's edits in a cell in real time, really, maybe they've changed that though, so I could be, like, yeah, like, I know that thinking.
0: it was a super janky product before where you couldn't even there were like you could comment on some things, but you couldn't comment on <laughs> others, and the version tracking like wasn't perfect, so you would lose things pretty frequently.
1: that's so funny. I don't know if they got that better. <laughs> I hope it's gotten better. I think it's gotten slightly better, but. I don't know who's using this, like like collab at companies outside of Google, to do their ML work in.
0: I think it's. This is something I've been thinking about a lot. Where. Obviously, we're all at home with COVID, or not with COVID, but because of COVID, and. Research has historically been this super collaborative effort where you're talking with you're just pinging a. You're just like tapping on someone's shoulders. you so like, hey, I have this crazy idea. This might work. What do you think about it? Or, well, let's go to a whiteboard and do this. Or let's have this Jupyter Notebook or this Spark this Spark run, and let's pair it together. And we're really seeing this struggle now for collaborative data science tools, machine learning tools, even software tools, to be honest, of people, everyone working in different locations. It's, it's not optimal yet. I don't know how we get there.
1: Yeah. I've thought a lot about it too. And I think there's two lenses. One is let's make a tool to solve every single problem and data science collaboration. But data scientists hate tools. Like they're not engineers. Like they only want one thing and one thing forever. They don't want to learn new tools, which makes total total sense. And then on the other hand, you like completely redo the entire workflow for data science and make it more like collaborative with engineering. That also seems impossible. So I don't really know what the solution would look like.
0: Yeah, and you even called this out in terms of in one of your articles where you said that there's there's like way too many tools in the the machine learning stack. What do you see as the future of that? Do you think that there is just going to be some end-to-end winner that everyone interoperates with or like more of a Unix philosophy where there's one tool for this thing and it works perfectly with everything else?
1: I don't know. It seems like the people building these tools are Unix-minded. So... Maybe that's what'll happen because those are the people building the tools. Yeah. I I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. I don't know.
0: Yeah, it's it seems like this is the podcast of let's give a lot of problems that we face. And hopefully <laughs> and no someone solutions. in
1: the
0: Yeah, hopefully someone will will solve some of these.
1: <laughs> I mean the thing is like if I had answers to these, I feel like I would build them. So <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> we would build them. Somebody would build them.
0: Yeah. And to kind of wrap up, uh, I guess, the, the ML in production section, kind of, where with one more question, what is there anything that you think that you were surprised to learn about how different something was or like something that was ended up being really useful in terms of putting things in production versus your prior research experience?
1: Yeah, I think having taken classes in databases was probably the most useful thing for my production systems because a lot of this like designing production pipelines is like figuring out what schemas to host your data in and what schemas to serve your predictions in such that like the modeling is smooth or the model pipeline is smooth and also the users can interact with the outputs pretty easily. And if you design that inference pipeline, like that links back to your like feature store. So what's the schema going to be of your feature store, which links back to your like data that you ingest. What's going to be the schema of the data that you ingest. I think all of that and designing all of that was, I- I'm glad that I took a database class.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, I def- that's something I to, definitely something I have to get better at. I was just a few weeks ago, a few weekends ago trying to set up HBase for some for some time series data. Man, what a nightmare. I need to I need to get better at, at all these databases stuff. But I really want to touch on your AI saviorism article that came out maybe last month. How did you first think up of the idea to write about it? And what has the reaction been?
1: Reaction has been more positive. There's some like mixed reactions, obviously, of like, why would you talk about this? Or like, why would you talk about white saviorism or stuff like that? And okay, yeah, how did I? I don't think I came, I don't feel like I can claim credit for the idea of AI saviorism. I just feel like I saw phenomenons that exist, like white saviorism, tech saviorism, and realized that it also extends to ai or ml and all of that hype and the reason i wrote it was i think i just just got really frustrated by a lot of people that are in the industry or even well respected in the industry that keep claiming that ai is like the savior to all problems whatsoever which is not true (laughs) and i i wish that i had known that in college because i definitely graduated from stanford with that mindset and i know a lot of my peers did because that's what we are taught in our classes um. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I didn't under. I didn't answer your question. What was your question?
0: <laughs> it was. Oh, you kind of did. the The original question was, uh, "How did you think of the idea?" So you did answer, end up answering. Okay,
1: it. I didn't think of it. It just <laughs> felt like a natural <laughs> continuation.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's like you said it. It is something that is pervasive. You always see people, or at least all these companies. Their marketing departments can sometimes get carried away in terms of the technology that they're, that they're using and what the potential of that might be, no, without caring about whether it's actually possible. Uh, something that I thought was a really good point was the observation of these professors and researchers who will just start their own company just to get aqua hired. I never actually. No one ever before had put that into words, and but that's such an astute observation.
1: I don't know if I said that explicitly, but I'm glad you got that takeaway from. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to be as subtle as possible, yet delivering that point.
0: <laughs> yeah, because they'll just they will show off the model and say, "Okay, this thing has really good results," but yeah. It is a black box, and we don't really know what's going on, and it is hard to connect to a lot of other things. But you can give us fifteen million dollars, and we'll work for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, there's two things that have really been on the mind but on top of my mind is like the greatest asset in machine learning right now is the talent, rather than the value that machine learning provides. And I really hope that we can change that because it should be the value that machine learning provides, not necessarily who's working in machine learning. And the other thing is I I think VCs and these domain or these machine learning experts really do shape the field of where machine learning is headed. Because VCs are the people who channel tens of millions of dollars into these ideas. And if those are the ones that get funded, if they're inherently like not ideas that will actually bring about any societal change, then machine learning is not going to have that much of an impact, I think, so yeah,
0: what do you think is required for us as a field to go from like you said the value of uh, of the talent into more of the value of the technology
1: I think we need to start thinking of ml as a tool to build a product. What are the What are the products that we can build to solve real business problems? Where like business problems can be like, I spent way too much money on this thing, or these cars are all having this failure. Or F- figuring out what the business problems are, figuring out what a product is to solve that, figuring out how machine learning is a tool in that solution, and then understanding how small, like, knobs that you dial in the machine learning model actually impact the ROI. And I think if VCs, like, think from that mindset and then, like, like stop stop funding ML companies that are not solving problems that deliver value. <laughs> Go find companies that are, like, actually saving lives or, like, delivering value or something. I think that will be a nice shift.
0: Yeah. Someone who works in VC, was telling me about how every VC feels like they should be invested in some AI company. And that doesn't really matter which one, but they do want to be able to say that they're invested in one, just for clout or whatever. (laughs) But in terms of the things that individual practitioners can do, you had a really good quote in the article that I'll read off of, which is, a strategy I've developed to fight my own AI saviorism to adopt more engineering and product related practices into my workflow. And we've already touched on a lot of the potential things that could be the answer to this, but are there others that we haven't mentioned or?
1: No, I think we, yeah, we touched on ticketing. I'm still struggling with it. I think it's hard or like writing documents to outline the entire experimental game plan um Putting it into like everyone else's decks or like whatever they use to track their own progress on their own tasks. Having frequent communication, I think it's just really hard to do in COVID, also, especially in the remote environment. Because like when you're in the office, right? Like you can see everyone and you can just be like, "Yo, this is going on." But now it's I need to schedule a thirty minute one on one, and if I have ten stakeholders in my group, that's five hours a week going to one on ones right there. And then the other thing is, like I set aside, like Tuesdays are no meeting days. Like if I just have so many meetings on Google Hangouts a day, my brain goes crazy. When am I going to get time to code? Yeah.
0: And to start to to wrap this up, one last question. What's one, outside of AI saviorism, what's, what do you think has been like the most useful thing that you've picked up in your uh, year plus of? working that maybe someone who's just coming out of school like me would find useful in their own uh, workflows. Oh
1: man, this is hard.
0: It can be more than one. I'm totally willing to do a, to accept more than one suggestion.
1: I want to spark for sure. I think just the abstraction of writing spark code, writing in map reduce, I guess. So writing code in that map paradigm, I think there's a lot of limitations in Spark, actually, especially for, like, stats tests or, like, various probability-related things or stats-related things you might want to do. Like, that doesn't exist natively in Spark, right? All of these, like, stats tests I was telling you about, like, they don't exist natively in Spark. Kind of, like, there are a lot of, like, low-hanging fruit projects, I think, that people can do in Spark that could generate value. but but i'm still i feel like a spark newbie sometimes in terms of trying to understand the query plan or like figuring out why my 100 executors is not enough or i don't know like how to partition properly like all of these things i think is just start early
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah no that that's really that's great advice especially since question for me because i recently have had to yeah do some things in spark and i've done like I knew how to query data, I knew how to do the basic ETL, but I ran into a problem where it was just so slow and I had no idea where to start in terms of what it was going on behind the scenes because I'd just been working with the abstraction and I, yeah, I had to go back and actually read like first the MapReduce paper and then how, see how Spark is actually working underneath the hood and it's okay, yeah, there's some things that are seriously wrong with your query yeah friends.
1: like how to write optimized spark is like definitely an art the other thing is learn how to use the spark history server or the yarn server figure out what tasks are the bottleneck and the dug like all of these things you can go down a rabbit hole in spark so it's like the question of like how far are you willing like to go i think
0: so to yeah like i said to, to start to wrap this up where can people find you online
1: I have a website, shreya com, And then also I'm on Twitter. So, yeah, Guys,
0: everyone should definitely check out uh, her writing because it is really good. Thank you. It's clear that you don't just write something once in <laughs> an hour and then put it out there like a lot of other developer blogs that I see out there.
1: Yeah, it's hard. I put in a lot of time. So hopefully, I'm glad that shows.
0: Mm-hmm, definitely. So to move on to some of the rapid fire questions. How do you recharge outside of work?
1: I like longboarding. I like working out. I like hanging out with friends. I like eating ice cream, like just basic stuff. But yeah, I would say physical activity for sure.
0: Yeah, I think everyone is realizing in their COVID times that if you just sit at home all day,
1: <laughs> you, so you just
0: go end up staying, going stir crazy. You do have to start moving. That's something I've been trying to do more. <laughs> what book or books? Do you most often recommend to other people, technical or non-technical?
1: So for, for technical books, I will jump on the designing data intensive applications by Martin Klepman, bandwagon. For non-technical books, I, I don't know. I'm a big fan of fiction. I don't think enough Silicon Valley people read fiction. And it's always those I won't name any of the books, but like the hack hack your mind or like productivity books or i don't know yeah yeah I, the I, only I, book not, that everyone not in those. silicon
0: Valley's read has been like sci-fi dune and <laughs> hitchhiker's guide <laughs> other no than that, there no are fiction. other
1: wonderful fiction books out there yeah
0: what is a use case for machine learning that you think is underrated or under exploited
1: i don't know under exploited or whatever i, I I haven't dug in deep into this space, but I think that there is a lot of potential to build um, mental health applications for people based on all of the data that they consume and produce. If all of my, or some agent knows like all the texts that I'm sending or receiving, like how I feel in those texts, how long I spend on certain websites, my screen time, my physical activity, all of that. And I don't know, is able to know whenever I'm like, Possibly feeling down, and connect me with other people, or know what things make me happy. I would just love that kind of service, but obviously privacy is an issue, and all of those things. But yeah, I, I definitely think there's a lot of room for machine learning and mental health services.
0: Yeah, that's a great answer. And two follow-ups to that, I guess that might be interesting. Is one, like you said, privacy is a big issue. There was a a leak out of Facebook. I don't know if you saw this, but that a little while ago where. They were actually experimenting with manipulating what they show people to make them more depressed or more happy. Oh,
1: I saw that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So there are some really dystopian things that, that could go on with this. And we need privacy, but it is such an important issue that it is possible that the, the gains that we get from this would be would be better than the possible abuses.
1: Totally.
0: And then the second thing, and this is a story that may might make me seem stupid, but I'll tell it anyway. I actually came across yeah i started researching a lot of the mental health for in terms of use case of ml but the way i got to it was my first idea was for because i have this i have this o-ring so that tracks a bunch of stuff i thought wouldn't it be great to track the mental health of your pet with with some sort of smart collar or something you could use ml i could the the home base that runs everything could be like where they sleep and stuff like that and i was telling a friend about it he's like are you focusing on mental health for your dog like,
1: <laughs> do, it do it for, for humans <laughs> that's so funny yeah totally yeah i used to use my aura and there's just like simple things i feel like you can do it just like correlating like sleep with how much you eat like how much you exercise
0: yeah it's uh like you said a lot of low-hanging fruit in this it there's it really feels like there you shouldn't have to have everything in a spreadsheet yourself to <laughs> the correlations but
1: totally. i don't know
0: what Kind of issues there are in starting company for that. And finally, how big of an existential risk is AGI?
1: I don't even know what AGI means. Everybody has their own definition of AGI. I think I feel like yeah, in, in one world where AGI is just sitting on I don't know random cl- clusters of machines in Oregon or something, in which it's just like dictating how I don't know applications are routed or something. Like I don't know if that's that much an existential threat. If somebody is like actually maliciously trying to build robots to, I don't know, start wars at other countries, then yeah, maybe it's a threat. I don't have a good answer for this. I think it's TBD. It's it's not a question of like how big of a threat is AGI. Like any technology, if if advanced enough is a threat, like nuclear weapons, for example. It's just a question of like, how are we going to use it? And what are we going to do with it?
0: And is there any final words that you'd like to leave with our listeners? Anything that we missed?
1: <laughs> I feel like we talked about so much. Nothing really. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was super fun.
0: Yeah, and it was great to have you. Like you you said in your blog post in, in our conversation, there's not that many people who have the chance to put these like super complicated in air quotes that uh, systems into into production and in a way that makes a difference in in the end users' lives.
1: For sure. So it's
0: uh, great to talk to you and yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It was a really great conversation,
1: thanks, Charlie. Um, a great rest of your day.
0: You too. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com, to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com.